always see Wilshire as that kind of place. Well, we are, uh, we're between sermon series. Last week, Jim wrapped up the book of Ecclesiastes. What a chipper study that is, isn't it? It's an important message that we need to hear from time to time, and I appreciate Jim leading us through that. But being between sermon series is a tricky thing for preachers. Preachers like to have sermon series so that we can spend time thinking ahead, planning, it also helps us not be overreactive to events and news of the day. We can stand up and say, this, this is the text, this is what I was given. If you're between sermon series and you share responsibilities with someone else, it also risks you introducing a new series. So I'm happy to tell you next week, Jim will be starting a 16-part series on Song of Solomon. You don't want to miss this series. It's... It will be a powerful series. <laughs> but it also allows you to talk about something that you've been thinking about, spending time on. I've been hanging out with the middle school, high schoolers on Wednesday night, going through the Gospel of John. This morning's sermon could probably be preached by anyone that's been in that class in halfway a week. Uh, awake because we've been talking about this text for the past few weeks. How many of you can finish this statement? For God so loved the world that whoever believes in him, perhaps the most famous words in the Christian language known to pop culture. John 3.16. There was an evangelist um, he was a, a professor of evangelism at a major university that wanted to study why is it that those words are some of the most well-known words of the Christian Bible. And he concluded that it kind of goes back to the 70s because in the 70s as sporting events begin to be televised, Christians begin to hold up signs in strategic places with John 3.16 on it. In fact, there's one famous guy by the name of Roland Stewart. Roland would, would hold a sign that said John 3.16 and he would wear a rainbow colored wig and he would always strategically place himself behind the goalpost, behind the backboard, behind uh, home plate and he always had John 3.16. It became part of the language of the culture of sports. You're watching a football game and John 3.16 is held up for everyone to see. It was also made famous uh, in 2009. It's already well known, but in 2009, Tim Tebow painted it in black under his eyes when they played for the national championship game. Google reported that 94 million people searched John 3.16 after watching that on the game. Fascinating, isn't it? If you have ever shopped at Forever 21, which I never have, never even heard of it, but Forever 21 will print on their bags, I am told, John 3.16. Or if you've ever eaten at Whataburger, not Whataburger, In-N-Out Burger. Don't confuse the two. If you've ever eaten at In-N-Out Burger, which I have, and you flip over the cup, you'll sometimes see John 3.16 printed on the bottom. It is one of the most well-known summaries of our faith. For God so loved the world 
that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I've been thinking about this text and teaching it in the middle school, high school. And I've been struck by the neighborhood of John chapter 3 and verse 16. You see, a lot of times we read a verse in isolation. It gets put up on billboards. People put it on cardboard cutouts and hold it up in signs. And very few people know the neighborhood of John chapter 3 and verse 16. Now immediately around it is this interesting text that, that looks back to Numbers chapter 21. And it's kind of an obscure text. The children of Israel are marching through the wilderness, coming out of Edom. And they start complaining as they're prone to do in the Old Testament story of the Exodus. They're complaining because it's taking too long. Why didn't God just let us die in Egypt? Were there not enough graves back there? That story. And God sends snakes as judgment, poisonous snakes as judgment. And when the people cry out and admit that they've sinned to God, God tells Moses, I want you to make a bronze serpent, the very thing that's killing them, and I want you to hold that up, and everyone who's been bitten by this snake can look on it and live. And then immediately after that, John says, God so loved the world. It's interesting. But I'm, I'm also interested in the broader neighborhood of John 3.16. You ever driven through one of those neighborhoods, it's, it's immaculately kept. People from out of town will drive through the neighborhood to see the fancy houses. You drive and there's a multi-million dollar house, immaculate yard, wonderful landscaping. The shutters are painted to match the rest of the house perfectly. Their pool has a nice water feature. It's just a beautiful neighborhood. The kind you want to live in. And then Across the street, or maybe even next door, there's an abandoned house. The yard unkept, cracked windows, landscaping shot. The neighbors complain about it because it brings down the values of everyone else's house in the neighborhood. Well, when you read John chapter 3 and verse 16, it lives in that kind of neighborhood. Let me show you what I mean. The house to the north belongs to a man named Nicodemus. John describes him, in essence, as the kind of house you would want to live in. Nicodemus has the manicured lawn, the impressive landscaping, the shutters that blend perfectly. Here's his description. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. And later in the conversation, Jesus in chapter 3 and verse 10 refers to Nicodemus as Israel's teacher. We're not exactly sure what that means. He holds high authority. He's a credible source. He's recognized as a teacher. But Nicodemus has the perfect birth certificate, a Jewish education, a Jewish career, and he rubs shoulders with the Jewish leaders. Nicodemus is the meaning of high society. As one preacher said, I've always liked Nicodemus. His degree, his stature, the doctor, bishop, MDiv, DMIN, PhD. When the governor and presidential candidates come to town, he's the first at the table. 
among the first served with waiters in watchful attendance. He offers the invocation and the anthropologists of status take note of Nicodemus. He has the nicest house and the nicest yard. But what people often forget about the neighborhood of John 3.16 is that to the north you have Nicodemus and to the south you have another house. Her house is in John chapter 4, a Samaritan. We're so accustomed to the phrase good Samaritan that we forget that the Jews of the first century would have viewed this as quite contradictory to even say. There can be no such thing as a good Samaritan. That's as, that's as goofy as saying a compassionate member of the white nationalist group. They don't exist. There is no such thing. The Samaritans had stolen Jewish land. The Samaritans had married Jewish women. The Samaritans had tainted Jewish religion. And when the Babylonians settled them there, they ruined everything. See, in this neighborhood of John 3.16, she is one of those houses. Unkept yard, broken windows. Her life, according to John, is a train wreck. She seems to understand just how big a train wreck her life is. Because you notice the little note in the text that she comes at noon to the well. You know when most normal people go to get water from the well? It's in the cool of the morning, the cool of the evening. Not this Samaritan woman. She comes at high noon, almost the time she knows. She won't have to talk to anyone. Almost when she knows she won't have to answer any questions or deal with any mockery or any downcast looks or any, any rumors circulate. If, if she goes at noon, she'll be safe. Read a bit further and you find out why she feels this way. Jesus said, verse 16, 17, Go, call your husband and come back. And she says, I have no husband. You're right, Jesus said to her, you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. That's why she comes to the well at noon. Her life is a scandal. She's had five husbands. She goes to apply for a wedding certificate and they already know her by name. The divorce judge knows her by name. We don't know a lot about her situation. We, we don't know if, these, if she's just really bad at picking men. We don't know if, if she's buried several husbands, though the text strongly suggests that's not the case. But all we know is in Jewish culture... Her house in this neighborhood is a blight on the neighborhood. And sitting between the house of Nicodemus 
and the house of this Samaritan woman are the words of John 3.16. Have you ever noticed how opposite Nicodemus is from the good Samaritan or from this Samaritan woman? He's a man. She's a woman. That's profound, isn't it? We know his name. He's Nicodemus. We only know her story. He's a Pharisee. She's a Samaritan. He is religiously pure. She is religiously unclean. He is a teacher of Israel. And she appears to be a dropout. Nicodemus is full of confidence, and she is full of questions. Nicodemus shows up and he says, We know that no one can do these things except he be sent from God. And she shows up and she says, Which mountain are we supposed to be worshiping on anyway? Nicodemus is on top of the social ladder. And the Samaritan woman is at the bottom rung of the same ladder. Yet they're in the same neighborhood as John 3.16. Even their encounter with Jesus is strikingly opposite. Nicodemus seeks Jesus out. The Samaritan woman is sought by Jesus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. The Samaritan woman meets Jesus in the light of day. Nicodemus leaves and seemingly slips quietly into the night. The Samaritan woman runs out and, in, and announces her encounter to her village. And with all these striking dissimilar things, their stories seem to be opposite. You see, this brilliant, educated, nice house on the corner of the street of Nicodemus is left puzzled and confused and confounded when he meets Jesus. In fact, the text almost makes light of Nicodemus. He is a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jewish people, the teacher of Israel. And when Jesus says to him, you must be born again, he says, the Pharisee, Ph.D., MDiv, top of the ladder, can a man enter his mother's womb a second time? This is the smartest guy in Israel asking that question. But when Jesus encounters the Samaritan woman, she asks him reasonable-sounding, deep theological questions. An interesting contrast. These two people are as different as different can be. Yet when John tells their stories, they're in the same neighborhood. And they're separated by that one text. That text that we've heard our whole lives, the text splashed on television screens at every sporting event. So you may be wondering, what's the big deal? I'm convinced that a lot of people know the words of John 3.16. But they have no clue 
the impact of John 3.16. And to see the impact of John 3.16, all you have to do is look at its neighbors. You know the text. Listen to it again. For God so loved who? The world. The whole world. The world that John chapter 1 and verse 1 says that when Jesus came into the world, the world wanted nothing to do with him. That the light stepped into the darkness and the darkness could not comprehend it. John says God loves that world. The world of Nicodemuses and the world of Samaritan women. The world of religious leaders and smart educated people and the world of outcasts. God so loved the world. And whoever, everyone who believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Everyone. The Jewish pedigreed perfect individual and the outcast left behind shameful woman at the well. That's the neighborhood of John 3.16. When John tells you that God's love is not constrained by barriers and extends to every person, he says it just after talking to someone who believed God's love was constrained to the Jewish people and the Jewish nation and to the people who followed the strictest Jewish laws. When John tells you that God loved the world and everyone who believes in him will have eternal life, he says it right before encountering someone as far from that pedigreed Jewish leader and he offers her hope. That's the neighborhood of John 3, 16. Whoever includes Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman living on the same block of the text. And the secret to the world that God loves and the broad salvation offered in Jesus Christ comes in what Jesus is saying in this text. The snake story of Numbers 21 is a weird story. But it's telling a truth that points to salvation is found in looking to Jesus and not in looking to yourself. God told Moses, make a, a bronze serpent and hold that thing up and anyone who's been bitten by this poisonous serpent can look on the bronze serpent and live. And John comes along, or Jesus, it's not clear if it's John telling this part or Jesus telling this part. And he says, just like that serpent was held up to offer hope and salvation to those bitten, holding up Jesus is your only hope of salvation. So when Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night, he's carrying with him and he's holding on to and he's clinging to his, his ancestry. I'm a Jew. I'm a Pharisee. I'm a leader of the Jewish people. 
And Jesus says to that man of the perfect pedigree, you're going to have to be born again. The birth that you've got, the, the birth certificate that you're holding, your parents, your ancestry, it's not good enough, Nicodemus. You must be born again. Your salvation, your hope is not dependent on your background and pedigree and your legal status or your economic status or your religious status. Nicodemus, your only hope of salvation, you must be born again. And I think Nicodemus has such a hard time swallowing that pill because it's so counter to what he's believed his whole life. But I'm a Jew. But I'm a Pharisee. But I'm the teacher of Israel. But you haven't been born again. And except a man be born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Because the only hope of salvation is in looking to Jesus and not yourself. And then across the street from Nicodemus in the text is a woman who has absolutely nothing to bring. She is a Samaritan outcast. A five-time married and divorced woman who's living with a man who's not her husband. And Jesus says, you too can be part of the kingdom of God. Because it does not depend on you. Salvation comes in looking to Jesus Christ. That's why the neighborhood of John chapter 3 and verse 16 is so fascinating to me. Because it looks good on a sign, and we know it by heart, and we can recite it, but do you understand what it's saying? I suppose it's because I've been hanging out with the teens and talking about this text, that it has changed the way I've processed the news and controversies of our day. There's a politician running for office who's taking some flack over a DNA test she took. There are state leaders who are being forced to confront the despicable actions of dressing themselves in blackface back in their college years. Our nation continues to battle over the question of do we build a wall or not build a wall and the way we talk about refugees and immigrants. There's an elected official in Virginia who openly and unashamedly discussed the possibility of taking the life of a child after it's born because it may be an inconvenience to the mother. And in John's neighborhood, across the street, Jesus talks to Nicodemus and to this woman at the well as human beings with dignity. And he offers hope to both of them. Isn't that remarkable? Whatever your beliefs about should we build a wall or not build a wall, I don't care about that. But I hope our conversation recognizes the dignity of the human beings being talked about. 
as strongly as the church should and must stand up against abortion and infanticide with all the power we have, we also must talk to the young woman who feels like that's her only choice in life. And even the person on the other side of our Facebook post deserves the dignity and respect that Jesus gave to Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. That's the neighborhood of John 3.16. It's not enough to recite the verses without knowing the neighbors. It's not enough to claim it as our defining element of our Christian faith without realizing that if you say those words, you say those words to the Nicodemuses out there and to the Samaritan women out there. That same verse applies to both. That God so loved the world and anyone who believes in him should not perish. At the risk of overextending the metaphor of the neighborhood, might I suggest that this text of John 3.16 lives at the intersection of grace and truth. That Jesus can speak the truth of God to Nicodemus, the ruler and leader of the Jewish people. A truth of God that says you must be born again. You must be born of water and spirit. And Jesus can speak the truth to the Samaritan woman. You're right, the, the man you're with now, he's not your husband. But he also does it with grace. Nicodemus, you can be born again. And Samaritan woman, there is coming a time when whoever wants to worship God, it won't be this place or that place, but in spirit and in truth. I am the Messiah you're looking for. Grace and truth is where John 3.16 lives in this neighborhood. It's a remarkable text. If you're upset or offended at anything I've said this morning, take heart. Next week, Jim begins a 16-part series on the Song of Solomon. <laughs> Hear it again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's good news. And it's good news God has sent us to proclaim to all of our neighbors. In the name of Jesus Christ, this morning we offer the same message of hope for the kingdom of God. And the same truth applies no matter the house you live in. Except a man be born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Except you be born from above, again, anew. And when you're born anew, God places you into his kingdom where he has promised to do incredible things and renew all things at his return. We offer that invitation in the name of Jesus while we stand and sing together.